Welcome to the Grattan Institute podcast channel. This is a recording of one of Grattan's public events. Good evening, everyone, and can I welcome you to this forward-thinking event at this fantastic forum, the State Library of New South Wales. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we meet and pay my respects to their elders past and present. Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Paul Austin. I'm the editor at Grattan Institute, and I'm delighted to be joined on stage tonight by three experts in their field. From my left, our transport and cities guru, Marion Terrell, Grattan Institute's energy program director, Tony Wood, and Grattan's budget expert, Danielle Wood. I'll introduce the panel more formally very soon. But before I do, let me briefly outline the structure for this evening. Each of the panellists will give a brief presentation of about 10 or 15 minutes, which will leave, we hope, at least half an hour for questions from you, our audience members. So please be ready to raise your hand when that opportunity arises. I should also mention that the Twitter handles and hashtag for this event are displayed on the screen behind me. So if you're inclined to live tweet tonight's discussion, please feel free to do so. It is, ladies and gentlemen, election season in Australia. In case you haven't noticed, the New South Wales election is only weeks away and the federal election will follow soon after, probably in May. It's a festival of democracy. And to mark the occasion, we at Grattan Institute produced something we've called the State Orange Book. I trust you've all read it cover to cover. It's basically a scorecard that rates the performance of each state and territory across a range of policy areas, not just an assessment of how the various state governments have been performing, but also recommendations on how they can service better. Tonight, we're going to dive deeply into three of those policy fields, transport and cities, energy and budget. And we're going to do so paying particular attention to the policies and the politics of New South Wales. We have a lot to discuss, so let's get to it. Our first speaker tonight is Danielle Wood. Danielle is the director of Grattan Institute's programs on budget policy and on institutional reform. Danielle has previously worked as a principal economist at the ACCC and a senior research economist at the Productivity Commission. She's the national chair of the Women in Economics Network and she sits on the Central Council of the Economics Society of Australia. Her recent reports for Grattan include an investigation of the role of money in our politics and her recent articles include calls for reform to negative gearing. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Danielle Wood. Thanks very much, Paul. Um, and it may be worth me mentioning as well that um, this um, State Orange book that Grattan pulled together was done with the support of the Susan McKinnon Foundation. Um, which, which funded this very substantial piece of work. Um, so I'm not going to just talk about budgets. I'm also going to touch on the economy and, and how New South Wales has fared. And it's often said that elections are won or lost on the economy. And I think 
Um, you know, there's obviously a lot of other very important policy issues that we're going to get to tonight. But nonetheless, I think economic policy still matters a lot when people are thinking about where to cast their vote. So how has New South Wales fared? Well, one of the exercises that we did as part of this orange book was to pull together this scorecard that Paul mentioned, choosing just two or three indicators that really matter and seeing how the states line up against each other. And in terms of those broad economic indicators, New South Wales is doing pretty well. Um, so incomes are a bit higher on a per capita basis than they are around the country. They've also grown faster. Actually, if you look at per capita incomes in Australia, they've stagnated over the past five years, which has largely been because of the poor performance of the mining states. Um, but in New South Wales, we have seen some steady growth in per capita incomes. Employment rates for people 15 to 64 are about on par with the national average, but we have seen improvements over the past five years. And the really important one, um, outcomes for young people, looking at young people's engagement either in work or study, um, has also been improving both in New South Wales and around the country. And New South Wales um, is now down to only 8.9% of young people that are not in education or employment. Um, so, you know, fairly healthy results across the board. Um, that's not to say that there's not um, some potential downside risks. Um, everyone would be aware there's been recent falls in house prices. If those house prices continue to fall, the risk is, of course, that it starts to bite in the real economy if people slow their consumption expenditure. There's potential risk if wage growth doesn't pick up. Again, that's already hurting um, consumer demand. Um, and finally, there's a whole lot of risks on the international stage, um, geopolitical risks, risks around trade. We've had our big um, global institutions revising down um, forecasts for global economic growth and um, you know, Australia and New South Wales will not be immune to those types of changes. Um, so economic policy is still very, very important. What do state governments actually control is a fair question. And I think perhaps governments often aren't honest enough about just how much is outside of their control. Um, so, you know, some of those global factors that we just talked about, um, a lot of the big policy levers are in the Commonwealth hands, at the, you know, in this space. So things like income tax, transfers, monetary policy with the RBA, um, you know, then you have droughts and natural disasters. All of those things have big impacts on the economy and, and entirely outside of the control of state governments. But there are things that state governments can do that have an impact on the long-term productive capacity of the economy. Uh, and, and often these are things that get overlooked when we're talking about um, the economics. Um, so first of all, land use planning rules. Um, cities are absolutely the kind of engine houses of, of state growth. Um, land use planning controls where businesses and, and, and new homes can be built. And historically in Australia, um, you know, we've been very resistant to, to building up density in inner and middle ring suburbs. Um, that's meant there's been a real disconnect between where people are living and where we're adding new population and where the, the jobs are, particularly the really high productivity jobs in the inner city. Um, Sydney's actually done pretty well on this in recent years and we have seen substantial increases in density, um, but that needs to continue in order to keep pace with population growth. Um, and I think there's already some signs at this election, um, Labor's come out against the medium density code, um, that there may well be a, a backlash against some of those um, policies that are both improving economic growth, but also improving housing affordability. Um, second of all, I think there's um, work to be done away, around the way we regulate natural monopolies. 
Um, so Grattan did a big study last year looking at the state of competition right across Australia and what it found was that um, regulated firms tend to have higher risk-adjusted returns than firms in other parts of the economy. Um, so that suggests that both Commonwealth and state regulators may have some way to go in terms of structuring regulatory incentives. But it also, really importantly, um, I think state governments haven't paid enough attention to when they're selling assets, selling them in a way that maximises long-term competition and consumer welfare. Um, New South Wales government has been, in my mind, you know, fairly criticised for um, trying to maximise sale price rather than competition when it sold its port assets and electricity assets. Um, reforms to education and training, um, obviously extremely important if you want to boost the long-term capacity of your economy. Having a more skilled workforce is a great way to do it. Um, unfortunately, our school education program director couldn't be here tonight, but if you are interested in that, there's many good suggestions in the report. Um, and finally, state tax reform. And really the economic dividend here comes from trying to swap less efficient taxes with more efficient ones. Um, the good news for New South Wales is you have the least efficient tax base, so there's, there's a lot of upside <laughs> in the picture. Um, but the reason New South Wales has the least efficient tax base is because it's heavily reliant on stamp duties. Um, now, I'm sure you've probably all heard economists angsting about stamp duties before, but you know, the reason why we really don't like them is they um, distort behaviour in a significant way. Um, if you have to pay a significant amount of stamp duty to move house, you're less likely to move to be closer to your work. You're less likely to move to a house that's more appropriate to your needs. Um, on the other hand, states have at their disposal um, the most efficient tax base in terms of broad-based taxes on land. Um, and that's why the stamp, stamp duty land tax swap is often held out as the holy grail of tax reform. Um, it's clearly something that's politically difficult but could make a big difference both to the stability of government revenues and to the economy in the long term. Um, so Grattan has done a substantial amount of work looking at you know, what that might actually look like. Just to give you a sense of the quantum, um, if we were to try and entirely replace stamp duty revenues with a broad-based tax on land, the unimproved value of land, um, in New South Wales, that would mean a, a levy of about 0.7%, $7 per every $1,000 worth of land. So if you have a house sitting on a million dollars worth of land in its unimproved state, um, that's $7,000 a year that you'd be paying in that levy. Um, that sounds high. It is high. Um, but then you think that's replacing stamp duty that would cost you $40,000, $60,000 if you were to move house. Um, so that is probably the biggest um, tax policy lever that the government <laughs> has um, at its disposal. Um, so I want to talk now about budgets. Um, and again, if I were to put up that kind of metric table, New South Wales is performing pretty well. Um, you can see that it's been running operating surpluses for about the past decade. Um, the, in fact, the surplus in New South Wales in 2017-18 is the biggest of, of anywhere in Australia. Um, but the other thing I think it's really interesting when looking at state budgets is to, to take a look at that historical perspective. Um, and what stands out here and in a number of other states, uh, it's even actually more marked in Victoria, is that we've had this inching up of the size of government over time. Um, so you can see back in 2003, 
um, state government revenues and expenses were sitting about 9% of gross state product. Today, that's closer to 13%. So I want to talk a little bit about actually what's been driving that change um, and whether there's um, some policy actions that, that are worth exploring there. Um, before I do that, I did want to just touch on debt um, because I'm sure the government's talking a lot about that in the lead up to the election. Um, New South Wales is one of two states that has um, abolished net debt, has negative net debt. Um, that has been helped, obviously, by running surpluses for an extended period, but also because you've had some very substantial asset sales over a period of number of years which have been used to retire debt. Um, but coming back to that question of what's been driving increases in revenues and expenses, um, on the revenue side, if we just look at the past five years, the answer is largely stamp duties and land tax. Um, so what this chart is doing is essentially showing how much additional revenue we collected for each of those categories versus how much we would have collected if that revenue line had simply grown in line with the broader economy. So you can see that stamp duty collections and land tax collections have substantially outstripped economic growth. Um, that's what happens in a property boom. Of course, we know those are not permanent revenues and we're now seeing what happens on the other side of a property boom. Um, so expect to see um, revenues falling short of forecasts for, for some time to come. When we look at the other side of the budget, what's been driving growth in expenses? Um, the answer is consistently health spending. Um, health spending is the area that tends to outstrip GDP over time. That's not just an Australian phenomenon, that's actually something we see right around the developed world. Um, so every OECD country, except for Iceland, spent a higher share of its national income on health services as it got richer. Um, and the explanation is, is, I think, probably quite straightforward. Um, people value the types of things that health services bring them. They value longer lives, they, they value better quality lives. Um, so an ageing population exacerbates this trend, but this is really about people wanting more and better services per person. Um, from a budget perspective, though, that obviously um, creates some pressures. If you have a category of expenditure that consistently grows faster than the economy overall, either you need to find ways to cut back in other expenditure categories to pay for that. We know that can be quite difficult, although there's plenty of good suggestions in the Orange Book and we'll hear some of them tonight. Or you have to raise taxes as a share of the economy in order to pay for it, and that's essentially what's been happening um, across state governments over the past decade. Or you need to find ways to try and deliver those services more efficiently. Now, Australia is pretty good in terms of the overall efficiency of its health system, but there is still quite substantial scope to do better. Um, Stephen, our health program director, isn't here tonight, but there are a lot of, um, you know, I think very worthwhile suggestions in the Orange Book. I just wanted to point to one of them. Um, and this is really pointing out the very substantial variation in costs that we see across public hospitals. Um, so this isn't about geography. This is only focusing on large metropolitan hospitals. This isn't about patient mix. It adjusts for case mix. Um, but even once you control for that, what you can see is New South Wales hospitals tend to be higher cost in terms of their interventions than Victorian hospitals, and they also have a much greater spread of costs. 
Um, and what that means is if we can change the funding arrangement so that we're funding more at the efficient level or bringing the higher cost hospitals down closer to that lower cost benchmark, you can, you can strip substantial amount of costs out of the system. Um, so there is a lot more detail. Grattan's done a very detailed report about what that might actually look like. But I think the chart really highlights the size of the opportunity that might be there. Um, the final thing I wanted to say on kind of long-term budgets and sustainability is I really do think fiscal targets and getting budget institutions are very, um, very important to, to get the right incentives for governments about long-term sustainability. So if I was in any other state other than New South Wales, I would be standing up and saying, you know, you should have fiscal targets enshrined in legislation and you should have um, an intergenerational report to look at long-term pressures and you should have a parliamentary budget office so that oppositions can cost their policies. Um, New South Wales already has all of these things. Um, and so, you know, always give credit where credit's due. I think, I think New South Wales has really led um, the other states in terms of these long-term budget institutions. Um, so in summary, um, in terms of the scorecard, New South Wales is looking pretty good on the economy, uh, perhaps not so good on the tax mix and pretty good on the budget front. But if um, you're looking for policy changes that can make a real difference, land use planning, tax reform, and um, trying to focus on some of those questions around the sustainability of the budget over time are the, the places that I think we'd like to see governments concentrate. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks very much, Danielle. And as Danielle said, she'll be happy to take questions later relating not just to budget and tax, but also in relation to her work on trust and integrity in government, uh, because I do believe that questions about integrity of government have occasionally arisen in New South Wales. <laughs> but before that... Can I introduce our second speaker for tonight, Tony Wood. Tony is the Energy Program Director at Grattan Institute. He previously worked for 14 years at Origin Energy in a range of senior executive positions. From 2009 to 14, he was Program Director of Clean Energy Projects at the Clinton Foundation. And in 2008, Tony was seconded to provide an industry perspective to the first Garno climate change review. His recent reports for Grattan include an explanation as to why your electricity bills are so high. And his recent articles include a lament about Australia's continuing failure to properly integrate energy policy and climate change policy. Ladies and gentlemen, Tony Wood. Thanks. Thanks, Paul. Um, that timeline um, reminds me that it's now more than 10 years since the Garno Climate Change Review. Quite went well, didn't it? Um, and, you know, a lot of the things that I just want to comment briefly are reflected of some of the things that haven't gone as well as they might, in particular, as Danny did focus specifically on New South Wales, although there inevitably is an overlap into the national debate, um, as there is in other, other areas of the economy. So, um, as Danny showed, this is a chart which takes a couple of the key metrics and compares the, the, the states. This one uh, looks at the, um, the three, I guess, three fundamental issues that people are concerned about. Um, price, prices of electricity, um, emissions intensity of electricity, 
and reliability of electricity. This is something that the Prime Minister, or the most recent ex-Prime Minister, called the trifecta. Now, if you look up trifecta in your dictionary or thesaurus, you'll find it's got something to do with gambling and horse racing. I'm not entirely sure that public policy should be based upon gambling and horse racing, but there we go. Maybe language and politics is different. When you look at these three things, what you see about New South Wales is actually pretty much in the middle of the pack. Um, and I'll come to one of the explanations why this is the case, but um, New South Wales is uh, relatively in the middle on all three of those, uh, much on, the, on those three measures. Um, the one thing that has been, uh, if we went back a bit further, uh, more startling in respect of New South Wales is network pricing. Part of that is associated with over-expenditure in our view on network some years ago. And when those businesses have been partly privatised, inevitably what that means is US taxpayers have benefited, but as US electricity consumers are now paying for it. Now, you may decide, well, I don't, I'm, I'm somewhat indifferent to whether the government takes the money from my left pocket or my right pocket. But if it creates inefficient signals for investment, then you should not be so um, um, benign about these sorts of things. Um, one of the reasons New South Wales has been so far uh, able to plot a chart which is reasonably in the middle of the pack on both emissions and on, um, on price has been that uh, it, has a it has a sector which is dominated by a certain mix of energy, um, that there's been no major closures in very recent times, although you'd be aware, I'm sure, of the somewhat um, ignominious debate around what happens after Liddell closes, will Liddell's about to close and so forth. Um, and um, the only thing there that looks a little bit concerning, you'd have to say, would be the increase in outages, which is the very top um, left-hand corner of that box. So that is, um, um, but as one of our most recent reports pointed out, uh, most likely that's more to do with you know inquisitive possums and um, some ageing infrastructure, particularly if any of you lived in the eastern suburbs and were without power um, on the... Uh, 20-something of January when there was a um, one of the major power, system, power lines underneath the network business failed. Um, it had very little to do with anything else except that. One of the reasons this exists in New South Wales partly is because of the nature of the energy mix. Now, all states in Australia um, basically got their energy many years ago from the naturally located sources of energy, which basically were, in the case of New South Wales, black coal. And that meant that compared to Victoria, um, it's, New South Wales had lower emissions, but on the other hand, um, uh, brown coal was very cheap. At the same time, um, New South Wales has a relatively um, small percentage of gas, and that was considered at once to be a benefit. Now it's seen to be a considerable um, uh, burden because the price of gas is so high and the price of gas flows through to the price of electricity. So it's a benefit not to be dependent upon the gas. And, of course, that's the price that South Australians are paying because they have, the, they have very low emissions, but they have very high prices. And that's not to do with renewable energy fundamentally. It's more to do with the, the changing nature of closing down old coal-fired power stations and replacing them, and not replacing them much at all, but in particular replacing them largely with gas. So just a couple more points on some of these numbers. The, the price story... Um, and I've got to fiddle with the, the Grattan colour palette because this doesn't come out so well in this particular chart. But you can see, in fact, the darkest reddish colour in that chart is New South Wales. And you can see, again, it's pretty much followed the middle of the pack in terms of wholesale electricity prices. Now, the wholesale price represents about a quarter of your end electricity price. Um, this is the price that there is, is moves around partly because of uh, changes in the energy mix. 
Now, in the case of New South Wales, as I said before, the thing that's driven to driven it up, as with the rest of the uh, rest of the states, has been the, clo- the closure of power stations to the extent that New South Wales gets some of its power sometimes from other states. Um, but also the high cost of gas has passed through to some extent in New South Wales, and so you've seen that. And in addition to that, there are the concerns in relation to the relative concentration of market power in the, in the wholesale market, so there's not that many companies who compete in generation. So, you know, the, the, um, and the story about, for those of you who use gas, um, and if you're in a business or at home, um, most in most homes in New South Wales, people don't use much gas compared to, say, Victoria. Um, but for those people, gas prices have also gone up, and that's been a challenge. Um, and it's playing out at big time because, as you would know, the, the federal minister now is the minister for lower prices, um, and um, it's an issue for New South Wales as well. Whether he's delivering lower prices might be a different trick. Um, the emissions side of things, because we, emissions is such a significant, climate change is such a significant issue in relation to energy, we often cover that as well because it's fundamentally been issues to do with climate change policy that have resulted largely in some of the challenges we have today. Um, and this chart shows Australia's emissions. Um, the, um, up until recently, you can see that the... Uh, the, the lines have been they went up quite markedly and have come, been coming down since 2006-7. Um, they've moved up a bit more recently, and this is all just changing in the energy mix between coal and gas and renewable energy. Um, in particular, you'll see after uh, into the future that what happens at the right hand side of this chart. There are two lines there. One is red, is, is middle red, and the other is quite dark. The top one is the 2018 projection of where our emissions are going, and the uh, the next one below that is the red is the 2017 projections. So on that basis, things are getting worse. Um, and you can see the dotted line at the bottom there is where the current government's um, emissions target for 2030 is. And this is the one that we're going to meet in a canter. Um, again, it's a horse racing metaphor that I think I'd keep away from because if this is a, is a canter, then I think we're on the wrong race course um, if we think we're going to actually achieve that because there's some challenges there. And, of course, just think about what that those dotted lines would mean if we were trying to achieve the... Labor Party policy, which is the 45% reduction. Now, inevitably, states get caught up in all this, because that's what I want to come to in these last couple of slides. <clears throat> Firstly, um, what should state and territory governments do in relation to the key areas of the energy sector? And energy is one where states do have considerable legislative influence, sometimes to the enormous frustration of the federal energy minister. And so you see some of the somewhat... Um, unseemly debate going on between Canberra and the states about some of these issues where the best thing you can do is blame somebody else for what's gone wrong. And so if you're in the Commonwealth, you blame the states, and if you're in the states, you blame the Commonwealth. And if, you're one of the, if you don't like the Commonwealth, then you blame one of the other states. So I've even had people suggest to me that one of the reasons why South Australia has problems from time to time, the Victorian government actually restricts the amount of energy that can flow into South Australia. I've never seen any evidence of that, but people are funny. I mean, the parochialism sometimes in Australia is quite remarkable. Um, and the Coag Energy Council, which is the energy of ministers which governs this thing, is also itself a very strange animal because not only is energy a very significant political issue in this country, and more so than in most OECD countries, because it's partly associated with a very politicised debate around climate change, it's also true that a number of state governments have a fundamental conflict of interest because historically they own the businesses and so they will always see themselves as having some direct responsibility for what happens with prices even when they have privatised them. So, in our view, the things that need to be done are, are the following. Firstly, uh, the states together 
should adopt a thing called the National Energy Guarantee. Now, this was a thing called the NEG. It's a terrible title. Um, it was very strongly supported by the previous uh, Energy and Climate Change Minister, Josh Frydenberg, and for reasons that no one I've ever heard in the coalition government can explain, it's no longer supported by the coalition government in the same way. But the reliability obligation, which was a two-pronged obligation in the market to, for, to try and cause energy retailers to both reduce emissions and maintain a reliable system while doing so, um, the reliability side is still progressing, and it's important that's done because if we do move to high levels of intermittent supply, namely solar and wind, then we need to make sure that we obviously maintain reliability because if you want to have a, a real fight between renewable energy and coal, that's one to have um, in spades. Um, we also think that the states should pursue a state-based emissions reduction scheme together if the Commonwealth for some reason doesn't or can't because that would be an almost as an efficient way of doing things as um, the, doing it with the Commonwealth. Now, who knows what's happening in the May election that Paul talked about, but we'll see how that plays out. But, you know, it's not... Even when you have um, uh, the same political parties in Canberra and in the States, you don't always get the same degree of um, what you might think would be cooperation or um, common, consistent approaches. But um, we think that approach would be far preferable to state governments doing their own thing and introducing the sorts of things that you've seen from both the opposition and the government in, in New South Wales. So, for example, providing direct subsidies for solar when they're demonstrably not even necessary anymore, if you want to get the take-up of solar, um, people are almost... most For most people, it's already affordable um, or certainly commercially viable. And secondly, there are better ways to reduce greenhouse gas emissions than putting more solar on household rooftops. Um, and including things like some of the mechanisms that the, uh, the Victorian government uses and that the, um, the state New South Wales Labor Party announced, we think that those mechanisms... Um, are more likely to do more damage in terms of the market and delivering affordable, reliable power than they're likely to produce benefits. On the electricity network, this is a big issue because it's a, it's a difficult one. It's one where the New South Wales and Queensland governments, and to some extent Tasmania, benefited significantly by um, the prices they got for their networks and the amount of money they spent in particular in Queensland and New South Wales some years ago is a problem, and we think they should do something about that. It's not an easy problem to solve because the government's already got the money from partly privatising. They've already spent money, money on other sorts of infrastructure. So do you want other sorts of infrastructure or would you rather have lower electricity prices is the political conundrum. And we think government should address that face on and make sure people understand the choices that are made for them by their government. I think the, um, uh, there are issues to do with the way the electricity system is, is um, constrained in terms of reliability. And we've seen circumstances in which governments have responded to even localised blackouts with, by increasing the supposed level of reliability. And because what they do doesn't actually have much impact on reliability most of the time anyway, um, again, we spend a lot of money for very little benefit. And um, one of the reasons is that we don't, have, we don't have consistent approaches to the way we think about electricity reliability. And a lot of that is dependent, of course, on what questions you ask people when, because they just had to throw away the contents of their refrigerator, they think reliability is really important. But if the lights haven't gone out for the last four or five years and they are really worried about increasing electricity prices, then guess what they're worried about? So that's a tricky issue for governments, and they've got to be very clear what they're doing. And then on the other three sides of the energy market, the, um, on electricity retail... There are problems with electricity retailers. If you've ever tried to understand electricity advertising, electricity bills, then you're better than I am because I've got most of the time I can't work this out. And the, the way in which the energy retailers, and I used to be one, um, advertise their product is 
at least confusing if not misleading. Now, for example, if you've seen an advertisement saying save 25% off your electricity bill and you see another advertisement saying save 35% off your electricity bill, you would be forgiven to assume that the 35% is a better deal than 25 not necessarily in this industry because they could be discounting from different base numbers. So one of the things that is being pushed through very strongly is to make sure that they, when they do offer these discounts, they discount from the same number, and that is an unfolding story um, almost as I speak. On the gas side, New South Wales is actually not as bad, in my view, in terms of some of the things they've done to restrict gas supply, although there are issues in some parts of New South Wales. I'm not suggesting for a second we should be exploring for gas in the middle of George Street, although it couldn't be any worse than trying to build a tra tram line down the middle of the street, I expect. Um, but yeah, there are things you just simply don't do. But equally, there are also situations where the development of gas on a consistent national basis would be a good idea. And having states having their own different environmental standards seems to be somewhat uh, bizarre for a country our size. Um, and of course, particularly when the, one of the problems we have is the lack of, um, uh, of competitive gas. And then finally, I think the issue of governance is a really arcane issue, but fundamentally important. And that is that, um, firstly, I don't, in, in our view, it is demonstrably the case, despite what you are sometimes told, that privatisation has been a good thing. The facts support that. Now, there's lots of other things that people will tell you that it hasn't been a good thing, and it's, it's the cause of the problem, but the, 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 the data does not support that, uh, that argument. And secondly, we do need to have a far better approach to the way we look up this national electricity market. And I think one of the things we've suggested is a new national energy market agreement would be a good idea in which we have some, some attempt to have some consistency about behaving as though we thought there was a national interest rather than always coming back to state-based parochial interests. Thank you. Thanks, Tony. And as Tony knows better than any of us, energy is a hot-button issue, so I'm sure there'll be plenty of questions coming your way very soon. Um, but first, to our third speaker, Marion Terrell. Marion is the Transport and Cities Program Director at Grattan. She's previously advised the Commonwealth Government, the Business Council of Australia and ANU. Marion authored parts of the 2010 Henry Tax Review and led the design and development of the MyGov account. Her recent reports for Grattan Institute include an investigation of traffic congestion in Sydney and Melbourne, and her recent articles include a plea, repeated pleas, for better selection of major transport projects. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Marion Terrell. I feel you've given away the punchline there, Paul. Um, so thank you very much and thank you everyone for being here tonight. It's great to be here. So what I'm going to talk about, as we approach the election, a, a lot of the, um, the promises that the major parties may make perhaps are in the future, although some have been made already. So I'm going to talk a little bit about Sydney in particular, um, because I think that's where a lot of these issues are most acute. Sydney is set to become Australia's second biggest city in the coming years, overtaken by Melbourne. And a lot of people give you the impression or have the impression of a paradise gone wrong, that we've had poorly managed growth here and it's left one of the world's most beautiful cities with too many people and too little infrastructure. 
In the face of increasing worries about crowding and congestion, there's just one proposed policy solution every time. It's new infrastructure and it just gets bigger. So tonight I'm going to try to persuade you to be a bit sceptical about this approach and to suggest what we might look out for as we get into formal election mode and caretaker period of the government. To start off with, though, what I'm not disputing is that Sydney's changing. So this slide shows you um, the composition of some of the, of the population growth that we've seen. In Sydney, there's been an average rate of population growth of 1.9% a year per year on average for the five years to 2016. And that is a really fast rate of population growth by international standards and by Australian standards. What you can see here um, is that both Melbourne and Sydney are adding a lot of overseas migrants and they've got a healthy rate of natural increase. But the difference is that while people are moving from elsewhere in Australia to Melbourne, they are moving out of Sydney. But this should not be interpreted, I don't think, as confirming the case that Sydney's broken. So what I want to talk to you tonight about is um, a fact that might surprise you. Despite regular media coverage claiming the opposite, the impact of rapid population growth on commuters has been surprisingly benign in Sydney. So let me explain to you why I think that. So this slide shows you the distances that people travel to get to work in Sydney, and it shows you in 2006, 2011, and 2016. And those of you at the back of the room might think there's just one line, and you could be forgiven for that because the distances that people have been traveling over that 10, 10 years, when there's been very rapid population growth, essentially are the same. It's not just distances, it's also times. So this slide shows you the times that people have spent traveling to work going back to 2002. But if you focus in particular on the most recent period, you can see that, in fact, for the entire period, half of people spend no more than half an hour getting to work, and it's very stable. A quarter of people spend no more than a quarter of an hour getting to work. Where you do see a little bit of creeping up is that there are, there are more people doing rather longer commutes. But even at the one hour mark, that three quarters of people are taking um, one hour or less. And th these times are not changing much at all. So the question is how to reconcile these findings, um, that commute times haven't changed and commute distances haven't changed with the concerns that the communities clearly got about population growth, congestion and crowding. I'm going to talk to you tonight about two important factors that help to understand these findings. And the first of these is where the jobs are located. And the second is that the adaptations that individuals are making. Now, Danny's already alluded to the, the question about where jobs are. And I, I want to go into this in a bit more detail. People often think that employment and employment growth are concentrated in the CBD and perhaps a few other key employment centres like Parramatta. And the implication of thinking about it this way is that it makes population growth really hard to manage because everyone is converging on one or two or three places on the same routes that just get more and more crowded and slower and slower. But this is not really where most of the jobs are. 
In Sydney, only 14.5% of the jobs are in the CBD. And that is pretty typical of Australian capital cities. Melbourne is the same. Even the smaller capitals are, are kind of roughly around 15%. The CBD is getting more important as a location of jobs, so its growth rate has been 3.3% over the five years to 2016, whereas for Sydney as a whole, it's been 2.0. So that is quite a big difference, that the CBD is becoming more important to Sydney than it was before. So it does seem that, um, but, but I guess in the 14.5% of jobs in the CBD is, is just not that high. And, and I think that this, the dispersed nature of jobs actually has proven a critical factor in how well Sydney commutes have stood up to population growth. So this chart gives you a visual impression of the dispersion of jobs. So this is a random sample of journeys to work, 200 journeys to work. Um, we did this a lot of times and it always looks pretty much like this. And it shows the home and the work location with the grey dots being the workplaces. So you can certainly see that there is a concentration of jobs in the CBD more than any other part of Sydney. So, um, you know, the, the grey dot is biggest there. Um, but the most overwhelming impression I think this chart gives you is that people are going all over the place, from everywhere to everywhere. I've highlighted Parramatta in there because otherwise I don't think you'd notice it. Parramatta, the second biggest job centre in Sydney, has got 2.3% of Sydney's jobs, and that hasn't changed in the five years to 2016. It's just keeping pace. After that, you know, there's daylight um, to the next biggest centre. So, so jobs, in fact, are very dispersed across Sydney, as they are across Australian capitals. You can think about jobs... Um, jobs growth in relation to the distance to the city, which is the point that Danny made. And what I'd say about this is that um, that it's pretty even. So, so what this slide does is it takes, um, divides all the jobs up into five groups of, of equal size and it, and it radiates them out from the centre. So of course you get a lot more of a concentration in the inner parts of the city um, and much and everything is much more spread out in the outer parts. But in terms of change over time, the jobs growth is pretty even across the city as to where um, the jobs already were. So you do see higher growth on, in the outer parts of the city and you do see higher growth in the inner parts of the city, but not by much. This is a pretty even story about spread of jobs growth across the city. In fact, Sydney is a lot like Melbourne in this regard. Whereas when you go to the smaller capitals, Brisbane, Adelaide and Perth, it's quite a different story. You get much stronger growth, jobs growth on the outer part of the city rather than this even sort of pattern. So to sum up, I guess, with the, the story about jobs, jobs in Sydney are highly dispersed. You've got three quarters of all jobs spread uh, across locations like shopping centres and schools and health clinics and construction sites and small offices all over the city. And this has been a very important factor in why population growth in Sydney has not translated into longer commutes. Because people are travelling all over the place, they're using the existing transport network more intensively. I'm going to move to my other reason now, which is the adaptations that people make. Um, there are a lot of ways that people can adapt to population growth in a growing city. 
they can move house, um, although they're rather hampered by stamp duty. Um, they can change how they get to work. Um, they can simply put up with a longer commute, at least for a while. I'm just going to point, in the time I've got left, I'm just going to point to some changes in how people get to work. So I'll just start by showing you how people get to work today. And um, you're probably not too surprised to know that car is the favoured means. But car travel is becoming less dominant in Sydney. It's moved from 69 to 67% to 64% over the 10 years to 2016. Public transport is higher in Sydney by a significant margin than any other city. So the rate is now 22%, up from 17% 10 years earlier. Once you get to walking and cycling or active transport, pretty stable at 5%. And I would also point out that working from home, it's small, but it's growing from 45 to 5% in the past five years. So this slide, um, this is a slightly easier way to see the change. What you can see here really is that there's approximately a switch from people out of their cars and into public transport. Um, and you, you can see here the uptick in working from home on the, on the far right of the slide. Given how much the population growth has, uh, the population has grown though, um, there's a further way to look at this information and that's looking at the particular changes that actual individuals make. And so we wanted to do this to see, um, is it just all the new people who are, who've moved into Sydney who are, ta who are uh, taking public transport or are others also making changes in what they do? And so to answer this question, I'll show you this slide. So um, this is a, a slide that looks only at people who were uh, working here um, in both 2011 and 2016 to look at the changes at that contained group made. So there's no new migrants and there's no education leavers and, and so forth in here. It's just people who are working here in both those periods. And what you can see here is that the um, if you look at the top portion of this slide, you can see that the this group of people, established workers in Sydney, were a bit more likely to drive than the population as a whole. And they, more, they didn't change as much as the population as a whole changed. So they didn't really participate in the uptick in public, tra public transport patronage that we saw for the population as a whole. But the most interesting thing I think about this chart is that if you look at the people who were driving in 2011 and weren't in 2016, they're roughly matched by a quarter or so of people who weren't driving in 2011 but were in 2016. And what this is showing is that below those aggregate numbers, there's about a quarter of people who in each five-year period are changing their mode of transport. And although a lot of the changes cancel each other out, the overall impact is that there is a lot of adaptation going on below the surface, really, that's often not recognised. So... I'm not really seeing evidence that supports the type of concern that we hear in the media and from politicians about people with um, lots of people with two-hour commutes, out of control, cities in gridlock, livability is terrible. Instead, I'm seeing that commutes are very similar to how they were five and ten years ago, both in distance and time. So I'm going to come back now to the forthcoming election. 
What can we expect to see once the campaign is officially underway? So it's, it is a little bit early to say what, we, what we're going to see in terms of the commitments to infrastructure, but my guess is they could be big. Um, but we, because we had a, an election in Victoria last November, um, I, I have sort of speculated that if it's anything like the, the same sort of story here, there'll be good news and bad news. I think the bad news in Victoria was that both the major parties committed to enormous infrastructure projects without business cases. So the coalition committed to regional fast rail at a cost of $19 billion, and the Labor Party, who then went on to win office, to a suburban rail loop at a cost of $50 billion. So these are huge costs, and... I think what's striking is that they didn't have even basic agreement about what the needs of the state were. So, you know, it's a sort of a generation's worth of spending, if you like, but um, no agreement on what as to what's important. The reason I think there's another reason why this these sort of enormous promises without any business case behind them or due diligence is that big projects are very risky. So this slide gives you a bit of an indication of how that is. You can see that big projects, and, and big is defined very sort of conservatively here at just 600 million, um, but whereas we're talking about multiple billions, but big projects are more likely to have cost overruns than smaller projects, and the size of those overruns is likely to be substantially bigger. The... That is the bad news, but there is also some good news out of Victoria, and I, I very much hope to see this replicated with New South Wales. There has been a noticeable trend towards promising not just not projects themselves, but promising to do a business case with a view to doing the project once that is done. So I really applaud the trend because um, it, it is a more responsible approach to spending public money. And the sorts of things that I'll be looking out for are... Um, for each project, is there a business case for this project? Is the business case public so that you, the community, and the media can scrutinise it? Is the project part of the state infrastructure st strategy? Is it part of the Greater Sydney Plan? Has Infrastructure Australia considered the business case? And if it has, what did it think? How much bipartisanship is there with this project? You know, Is it something that we all agree is a good idea, or is it iconic for one or other party. It's all about public money, and for every dollar wasted pork barrelling, there is less available for anything else, so be sceptical. So Sydney is an Australian treasure. It's beautiful, and it's vibrant, and it's prosperous, but um, with the right policies, um, and without, with the right policies, governments can ensure that it remains this way, and the benefits that really entice people to come and live and work in, in a big and vibrant city can outweigh the costs of congestion and crowding that do come with population growth. Thank you. Thanks very much, Marion. Well, ladies and gentlemen, as you have seen, we have here three of the sharpest minds in Australian public policy, and they're now available to take your questions. 
But first, I wanted to ask a brief question, if I could, of Danielle. Danielle, as you said, your responsibilities went beyond the budget and tax chapters of the Orange Book. You also wrote a chapter on institutional reform and integrity in government. Can I just ask, as you surveyed the states and territories on that score, what did you find? Um, so what we found, actually, I, I went back and had a look at it this morning. It's, it's very difficult to come up with kind of numerical indicators of institutions. So instead, we decided to do kind of a school report card grading, A to E type system. Um, and New South Wales was actually the only state that got all A's. Um, now, that's not to say that it's got a perfect integrity system by any means, but certainly the key things that you would like to see in place in terms of transparency of government and accountability seem to be there. Um, so, for example, New South Wales is one of the only states to publish ministerial diaries. Um, that's a great thing because it allows the public and the media to see who our politicians are consulting with over time. We hope that means it will drive behavioural change and they might um, you know, think beyond the usual suspects and consult more broadly. Um, there's problems with that. There's not a lot of detail. I think the Liberal Party has come out and said they will publish more if they're elected, which I think is a very good um, commitment. Um, New South Wales has also got pretty good transparency in terms of political donations. You can see all donations over $1,000. They're reasonably timely. Um, certainly, compared to the Commonwealth, you find them out a lot more quickly. Um, it's not kind of on the best practices, Queensland and South Australia, where it's within a week, um, but, but by and large, not too bad. Um, you have a strong integrity commission, which, which clearly goes hard against um, cases of serious misconduct. Um, so in terms of the overall accountability framework, um, New South Wales is faring um, pretty well. And the, and the Commonwealth, Danielle, has finally committed to a Commonwealth Integrity Commission. How does that proposal stack up and what might that commission learn from the experience of New South Wales and ICAC? Well, we don't have a huge amount of detail about what the Commonwealth um, Integrity Commission will look like, but based on what the government has said to date, um, I'm not filled with confidence that that will be mm. a strong body for pursuing misconduct in the way that the, the New South Wales ICAC has been. Um, first of all, they've said that it will only investigate conduct that's referred um, from the federal police or from heads of agencies. Um, what we know is that most of the tip-offs about conduct um, by parliamentarians and in the public service comes from whistleblowers. Um, so you really need an avenue for which those whistleblowers can, can make their concerns known. Um, second of all, it's only going to focus on criminal conduct. Mm. Um, there are a lot of things that, that politicians and public servants can do that um, are serious and, and are against the code of conduct that they should be held to um, that do not fall into the criminal category that I think that an integrity commission um, should capture. Um, and then there's also some, some pretty serious concerns about the funding of that body. Um, you know, when we look at how much money it's actually going to have dedicated to these types of investigations, it, it's less than what New South Wales ICAC has, for example, for the equivalent investigations, despite the fact that, that the types of public servants that are covered, they're, they're much greater in number. Um, so I think, um, you know, there's, there's big question marks over that proposal and, and whether it's sort of window dressing as opposed to, you know, really serious about pursuing these sort of integrity reforms. Thanks, Danielle. Okay, it's over to you. 
Um, if you'd like to ask a question, please raise your hand. And if you get the call, wait for the microphone so that everyone can hear. Uh, please be as brief as possible. We want to try to get as, get through as many questions as possible. So everyone here will understand if I say we're looking for questions, not statements. And the first one is right at the front here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all very much. This is intriguing. Um, I'm wondering if in the context of your work, um, there are any, this is going a bit, you know, beyond your three specific uh, four specific areas of expertise, if there are any cultural policy ideas or recommendations, directions that come from uh, what you have said. And I'm thinking in particular about a couple of things. So Parramatta, of course, is identified in this state as a place of significant cultural investment in terms of the, of the decentralization of a range of different journeys, so not just our journeys to and from work, but um, uh, you know what we do in evenings and, and, and weekends, um, and in particular, um, there's a lot of you know talk at the moment around the nighttime economy, around festivals mm. and so on, um, and um, uh, you know that that sense of New South Wales being eclipsed by other states in that area. So I'm wondering if, um, from the range of different perspectives, any cultural policy directions that uh, that emerge from your findings? Marion, can I throw that to you, the, the influence of culture and festivals on the shape of a city? Yeah, so New South Wales, it, it, it's very interesting what's happening with Sydney and, and particularly this three cities vision, which I think goes well beyond places of work, as, as you rightly point out. Um, it, it's quite difficult to kind of shape the city to be how you want it from the centre. A lot of this is quite organic. And, and I sort of see that when I look at where jobs are, that um, they can be very constrained by government regulation, um, as can sort of not economy activities and so forth. They can be very constrained, but it's hard to actively make them happen. So I think it perhaps goes to um, a point that Danny made at the beginning that there's a lot of um, constraining regulation. I think a lot of zoning and planning is very constraining for people doing what they want to do, where they want to do it. And um, so that's part of it, as well as um, constraints on people living where they want to. And I think probably also employers locating where they want to is also quite constrained. So there's, there's many constraints. A lot of them have got good reasons and a lot of people wouldn't want them to be um, no holds barred. But it also does have a downside, which is that it stymies things that might otherwise be generated. I'm going to move on to this gentleman just here, Megan. <coughs> Uh, hi, Chris Johnson from the Urban Task Force. A question to Marion on cities and things as well. My, my feeling is that congestion is actually a proxy for a dramatic change of lifestyle happening in Sydney. It moves to apartments, to density, to a, uh, a move away from the detached suburban house uh, and those sort of issues. So I'm interested in your comments on this, Sydney versus Melbourne, uh, in that regard. And, and is it really, uh, as you say, it's not so much the congestion. I suspect the tensions happening in Sydney at the moment are around a fundamental shift of lifestyle. Marian? Yeah, so it's very interesting. I, I sort of I agree with you in, in the sense that I think congestion is where it all comes together. But people are making a lot of different choices. So they are choosing um, where they want to live. Um, it's obviously a constrained choice, so it's partly to do with uh, housing prices or apartment prices, but also what sort of neighbourhood you want to live in. Um, and then what kind of job you can reasonably access from that place and 
um, what your what um, what amount of time you're prepared to spend commuting. So I think there we do see a bit of a difference between Sydney and Melbourne in that Melbourne it seems as though um, the blockers on um, on residential infill seem to be more substantial and more effective than or more significant than they are in Sydney. But um, it, it's a delicate balance, I think, between people who move to an area and they, they have an expectation that it will be not changed radically. It all seems to be get very acute around on-street parking, especially in Melbourne. Um, but I, I think that those constraints um, are, are a really difficult balancing act for government and partly because just the, the pure pace of population growth has been so fast. I'm looking to my left and I'm looking up the back to the woman with her hand up. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you for the great presentations. Um, a common theme seems to be across these policy areas and others, a lack of evidence-based decision-making. And I'm just interested in um, the panel's views on any interesting or innovative uh, mechanisms that can encourage, if not require, legislators to observe the best evidence before them before making such big decisions. For example, I mean, I'm aware that Washington DC have set up a think tank that's kind of nonpartisan, um, research based, putting some great evidence before policymakers before big decisions are made. Imagine no. such an Australian version, an Australian version of such thing. Um, certainly, that's what we very much aim to do and hope we do um, is provide that kind of um, non nonpartisan advice. Um, and the other thing I would say that um, you know, as Grattan, we try and do is obviously um, get out and publicly try and talk about it as well because that's um, a very effective way. Um, I've certainly found, and I know others have found, of, of you know holding governments to account is you know be out there in the, the public domain talking about what the evidence actually says. Um, but I think, you know, where where do we expect that evidence-based policy to come from is largely the, the public service. Um, I think there has been um, somewhat of a trend, unfortunately, to, to sideline the public service in some of these decisions. Um, and, you know, you hear a lot in the public debate about the shift um, to ministerial officers having a lot more um, power in decision making as opposed to the public service. So, um, you know, I think that is one thing that could um, hopefully address some of these concerns. Um, that would be behind closed doors. But I think, you know, there is a lot of great, um, you know, interesting evidence-based policy happening within the public service. So, you know, getting our political leaders to, to listen more to those advisors, I think, would be a very good place to start. Tony, a lack of evidence-based policy, you would never have seen any of that, would you? I guess one of the things about many of these policy areas, and I think energy is one, um, is that if you've got an opinion, you can find a factor support it. And there are, you know, and the, the classic examples have been around the, the, the issue of what happened, what caused the blackout in South Australia. And if you want to believe that it was caused by too much renewable energy, you'll come to that conclusion from some facts. And choose another set of facts, you'll come to the conclusion it wasn't caused by that at all. So there, there is that problem. And I think that, you know, there is, a, there is a tendency to, if you don't like the advice you're getting from your office, to go and get advice from somebody else. So I'm going to get a your favourite economic modeller to give you an answer that tells you the answer you want. And so I think that's, it, is, it is a real problem. Um, it's causing bad decisions because we end up you know, trying to fix the wrong things. Uh, and I, at the moment, I'm not sure how we, how we find a way out of it because it seems to me it's been getting worse uh, in, in the area that I work in. And you know, 
most recently when we sort of pointed out that if you know the problem with having blackouts in Victoria wasn't because the Victorian government um, was forcing out the closure of coal-fired power stations. If your power has gone out in the last 10 years in this country, it's probably because there's been an inquisitive possum or a, you know, cars run into the power line or something like that, right? It's not caused by too much renewable energy and not enough baseload coal-fired power stations. But if you've got that, if you've made up your mind what the answer is, then you'll come to that conclusion regardless of that information. So I, it is a... We are in a situation where I think we are dominated by opinion-based opinion based rather than fact-based um, policy-making, and it may be some time before we get out of it. I'm going to throw to this gentleman here, please. Thank you. Um, my name is Andre Brockman. I'm a student at UNSW doing city planning. I'm not sure this is a question. I'll, I'll, I'll see if it is. <laughs> Put a question mark at the end and get to it in a hurry. Okay. Um, what, um, Marion mentioned generational spends um, in the case of infrastructure I feel that that is fixed infrastructure that is money that gets outlaid and then there's nothing you can do about it so when you have a, politi a political slash opinion based way of doing things like with say Sydney Metro and ignoring the capacity that's there in the existing network that could be used with a new network core which is what Melbourne, Brisbane, London and Paris are doing um, what do you do? The opportunity is gone and you're stuck with something that underperforms compared to other projects you might have got to if you actually looked at things holistically. Marion, have we got a herd of white elephants here? <laughs> well, um, so, so clearly it's very important to do your due diligence because for every time you build a very expensive project that is sort of 10th on your list, you don't get number one or number two or number three. So I certainly agree with you. Um, I would point to one um, promising thing I've noticed in the um, election promises um, of the Labor Party as it happens in New South Wales, which is that um, if they were to win office in the uh, when after the election, they would, for projects valued at a billion or more, they would have, um, I forget the term, but some kind of community panel that consults um, community and business about the project. I think um, essentially trying to engender a more bipartisan or a more sort of uh, community-supported approach. So um, depending on how that plays out, I see that as a positive um, intention and um, that kind of thing is... Um, a very good corollary to a sound economic analysis. Another question all the way over here <laughs> to give Megan some exercise for the evening. because <laughs> no, no, we're recording it, so thank you. Sorry, sir, just wait for the microphone. <laughs> I needed the exercise anyway. <laughs> uh, thanks, folks, for your um, uh, presentation. I love think tanks because often they, um, they've got great idea, but they just suck at politics. So my question's about... <laughs> Um, about politics, really. So it's the 24th of March, okay? It's the day after the election in New South Wales and you're hauled before the Premier exclusively. The Premier's got the red book the, or the blue book or whatever book they've got. Maybe they've, the orange book. Maybe the orange book, maybe the orange book. But they've also sp they've cut, they've spoken to their key civil servants advisers and they've hauled each of you in because you're experts, and the Premier asks you three things. What do I do? But they ask, the Premier asks you to answer them in three ways. 
what can I easily do, what do I need to do, and what should I be remembered for? What advice would you give the Premier on the 24th of March? Great question. <laughs> the caveat is that you guys all suck at politics, but... <laughs> but... If, uh, if you had the opportunity to have 10 minutes with the new Premier of New South Wales or the returned Premier of New South Wales on that Sunday morning, perhaps I'll boil it down to what's the one thing you would emphasise, Danielle? Uh, I would have to go with state tax reform. That is good policy, but it is dreadful politics, as you've said. Um, so, look, I think... Um, we do look at the politics as well. And, and so what I would say is first best, big bang reform, you know, your legacy will be a transformed tax system and a better economy. If you don't have the political courage to do that, and I can understand why that might be, instead of doing, um, you know, abolishing stamp duty and bringing in land tax, um, the incremental version of reform is to index the stamp duty bracket so they move with property prices so you're less reliant on stamp duty over time. Um, less impressive in terms of a legacy, but nonetheless, you know, still making a contribution to um, improving the economic mix of taxes. Um, so I like to think that, um, you know, every time we kind of put out um, policy first best, we also have um, an eye to what's politically feasible and often that will be, it will it'll be second best, but a lot better than what we have at the moment. Tony, I'm the Premier. You've got one thing to say to me. Say it now. I think the um, one thing about we try and do is to be very aware of the politics because we've said for some time that you know what's second best policy that actually gets implemented is far better than the first best that never does. So the political framework is interesting. So you look at a, this is sort of the 24th of March as rather than it says before the federal election. I would say that the Premier of New South Wales, whoever they are, I suggest there are two priorities in my view. One would be to seriously look at writing down the value of the assets in the way we've recommended, which isn't a write-off necessarily. There are other ways to do that. It's a big number in terms of if you want to bring down prices, that's the one thing that would probably have the biggest impact. And the second thing is take the advantage of the premier state and actually take a national approach to developing an approach to climate change and energy policy that integrates and use it now while they have the opportunity. Marion, one message. Yeah, I don't have any easy ones, sorry. So uh, your point is very vindicated. But I think, um, so Sydney, um, so there's, there'll be, my, my guess is there'll be a pile of election promises, some of which will have business cases and some of which will not. The ones that don't, pause. That's easy. Tell the community why you're pausing. And then as to what to be remembered for, at some point, um, some Premier in New South Wales will decide that you can't build your way out of a growing city, you can't build your way out of congestion, and will start to dip their toe in the water of congestion pricing. That would be a legacy. 
I was going to ask a last question, but I can't do better than that. That was terrific. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm very sorry, but we are out of time. I want to just say a few very brief thank yous. I want to thank the management and staff at the State Library of New South Wales. It's really a privilege for us at Grattan Institute to have such a, a close and enduring relationship with the library, library and we really appreciate it. I need to thank the Susan McKinnon Foundation, as Danielle mentioned, because the State Orange Book to which we've been referring was supported by a generous grant from the McKinnon Foundation. I want to thank Megan French. Megan is Grattan Institute's events guru, and events like this happen because of her hard work. So thank you, Megan. Thank you to you, our audience, for your interest, for your engagement, and for your questions. Please keep in touch with the Grattan Institute via our website, and please keep a lookout for other forward-thinking events here at the State Library. And finally, ladies and gentlemen, would you please join me in thanking the stars of tonight's show, Daniel Wood, Tony Wood and Marion Terrell. Thank you all and good night. Grattan Institute is uniquely positioned to bring an independent, rigorous and practical lens to big issues in public policy with the capacity to talk honestly to both sides of politics. We maintain this unique position through the generosity of the public and our affiliate companies. If you would like to find out more about contributing to our continued independence, head to our website to donate, grattan.edu.au. This has been a Grattan Institute podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to our podcasts on iTunes.